So wonderful to be back at the Houston Zen Center. Oh, now it sounds more resonant. So wonderful to be back here. Um, and thank you so much to Gail and Roshi for inviting me to give this talk. Appreciate um, all the support of everyone in the Sangha. Also, I want to say that there are some um, folks who I haven't seen in quite some time. And um, particularly, there are two members that were in the original group called the Houston Dharma Punks. And so good to see them here. Um, as my friend Matt Brownlee said, it's like a high school reunion. <laughs> so the Houston Dharma Punks was kind of like, um, kind of like a little pocket sangha that met upstairs uh, for many years every week. And we had um, Zen practice, sitting, uh, informal Dharma discussions. We collaborated with Food Not Bombs. So we also did this kind of socially engaged practice. Um, we were sitting together and also exploring with a more kind of informal practice space that we were creating together. And uh, Matt, when did we start? Maybe in 2009? You are asking the wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. 2009. That sounds plausible. 2010. <laughs> Quite a long time. So um, wonderful to see everybody here. Um, I want to talk today about uh, an image from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. How many people here have read Shinru Suzuki's Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind? I'm just going to raise my hand to demonstrate. No, <laughs> okay, wonderful. So many, many of us have. Some of us have not. Um, so I will give you a little bit of a background to what I'll be speaking about from uh, his book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which is a really foundational collection of Dharma talks. And I'm going to be talking about um, a chapter titled The Marrow of Zen, The Marrow of Zen, in which he uses an image of the four horses, which is an image or a kind of allegory that's also mentioned um, by Dogen Zenji, who I know was referenced in the, uh, in the announcements. And in Dogen Zenji's book, The Shobo Genzo, his massive collection of writings and talks, um, there is a fascicle that I wrote a response to called Four Horses. Dogen's fascicle is titled Four Horses. So what are these four horses? Um, the last time that I was here a few months ago, I talked about leaving home, leaving home. And uh, that's relevant because Dogen also references leaving home in this piece of writing called Four Horses. And uh, I talked about leaving home in a couple of different senses. In the Zen tradition, it's quite clear uh, that practitioners are recommended to literally leave home at some point in their lives and to enter a monastic space, to join a monastic community, and to dedicate their lives to practice in that way. By going in and living in a monastic community and co-creating the space of that monastic practice. So there's a literal sense in which leaving home is recommended. But I also was talking about leaving home as more of an internal process in our practice, you know, because so many of us have responsibilities, obligations to people around us, our families, our communities. Um, so maybe we're able to, to do that literal leaving home for short periods of time. But in another sense too, internally, as we engage in our Zen practice, we can consider what leaving home means. 
um, leaving home as a step away from our conventional understanding of what home is and an exploration of what it means to make our practice our stable base, our kind of foundation of belonging. Um, so that's like, that's like the recap from the last episode, you know, like in a, in a series. <laughs> that, that's the recap. <laughs> so moving into the four horses. Um, I first encountered this image of the four horses, as I mentioned before, in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And uh, in that chapter, Suzuki says, in our scriptures, it is said that there are four kinds of horses, excellent ones, good ones, poor ones, and bad ones. I like that there's no mediocre one. It's like excellent, good, or poor. <laughs> like there's no C grade, right? It's just... <laughs> The excellent horses will run according to the driver's will when it sees the shadow of the whip. The good horse just before the whip reaches its skin. The poor one when it feels pain. And the bad one when the pain penetrates to the marrow of its bones. So they follow that. So the excellent horse senses the shadow of the whip and responds. The good horse responds just before the whip hits the skin or touches the skin. The poor horse, when it feels pain in its body. The bad, quote unquote, bad horse when the pain penetrates to the marrow of its bones. I think there are a couple of ways that you can um, look at this metaphor. One is that you're the horse and the rider is your teacher. <laughs> and um, you can gauge your success as a given horse in terms of how responsive you are to your teacher's instruction. And um, in our tradition, the way in which we often learn things is not through receiving verbal instruction. It's through actually observing and, uh, and imitating or attempting to accord with the forms of our practice. So I know when I first showed up at the Zen Center, when it was in a different location on Heights Boulevard, and I came in and um, I had never been to a Zen temple before, I watched people really closely and I tried to do what they were doing in my awkward, uninformed fashion. I just tried to put my body in the position that it looked like other people were assuming. And, um, and that was a continuous practice of learning. So that's one way I think that we can look at this analogy that we're the horse and we're aspiring to be responsive to the teachers that we encounter in our practice life. And I'm just thinking about one singular teacher, although that may be true, but the way in which all the members of the Sangha all of our fellow practitioners are our teachers. So we're constantly observing what's happening in this space together and trying to, to follow and be aware, pay attention. Um, a second way I want to suggest that we could see this image is that you are the rider and the horse. You're both the rider and the horse. 
when, when Shinru Suzuki mentions the driver's will, right? I think about the ways in which um, the part of us that's the writer is the part that genuinely wants to practice wholeheartedly and to uh, develop in our practice of Zen. And the horse is our body and mind that sometimes seems to be in sync with this aspiration, this internal aspiration and sometimes seems to forget our internal commitment to practicing in a deeper way. Whichever view of the horses we take, either the, you know, we're the horse and the rider is external to us or the teacher in a sense is inside of us um, and the student who wants to learn is inside of us, of course, uh, Suzuki makes the point that we all want to be the excellent horse. Like nobody's signing up to be the bad horse. <laughs> like team bad horse, you know, it's not a popular choice, <laughs> right? Um, and that brings Suzuki to a really important teaching point, which interested me in this, um, in this chapter from his book. So Suzuki says um, in terms of this desire to be the excellent horse, or um, to improve yourself, right? To be a little bit better in your hoarseness. He says, if you think the aim of Zen practice is to become one of the best horses, you will have a big problem. <laughs> this is not the right understanding. If you want to practice Zen in the right way, it does not matter whether you are the best horse or the worst one. And I thought, whew, I feel better already. <laughs> this is wonderful news. <laughs> um, I also was thinking about in terms of um, what Suzuki is pointing to, our own evaluation and judgment of our practice. Um, I was thinking one of the interesting complexities is that we could think we were one of the best horses and really not be one of the best horses. Like we could be greatly mired in delusion about our status as a horse. Um, I observe within myself and with other people, people who seem to really believe they're excellent horses, but to me, that doesn't seem to be true. Or within myself, moments when I feel like I'm crushing it as an excellent <laughs> horse. And then in retrospect, I, I feel, no, no. <laughs> I was really off base. Like, I can't even see, my perception is necessarily limited, right? This is a fundamental Buddhist teaching. My perception, particularly my self-perception, is necessarily limited and incomplete. So can I hold these perceptions lightly? Can I hold these beliefs about myself and others? Um, very gently. So it could be objectively, and then objectively, maybe I am a bad horse, <laughs> It could be demonstrated to me over and over in such a definitive way that I realize, well, um, I could be a better horse. And then maybe that's also a kind of marker that's being given to me or a kind of gift that I can receive and, um, and sit with. Turn the page. Um, talking about this more specifically for just a moment. Um, 
I think that some of us immediately take to zazen and chanting and bowing. Some of us come into this practice and we uh, feel a natural accord with the practices. Um, but I think that almost all of us, I would say all of us, but I don't want to make such a broad statement, struggle with resistances to the practice in various times, in various ways. We notice some things may become easier to us. Other things are more difficult. And so we're constantly kind of calibrating our efforts to notice these areas of resistance, to notice what comes to us most easily and naturally, and to, um, to realize that where we're meeting resistance, where we're feeling like we're the bad horse is really an incredible opportunity to meet with the resistance and to acknowledge the struggle. And through that meeting of the resistance, we deepen our practice because we're trying to find out what's true. We're exploring what is actually true in our lives. For me, I had um, a lot of resistance to the bowing, which, um, you know, the, I think the general Zen prescription would be do more of that. Do a lot more of that. Do a lot more. Lean into, lean into the areas where you think that you're the worst horse, rather than recoiling from and trying to avoid um, those particular areas. Um, Shinra Suzuki also says that um, our facility and our ease with particular parts of our practice may actually inhibit our deeper development of the practice. If something comes to us really easily and naturally, it may be hard to advance in it. Um, Suzuki says in his talk, when you're determined to practice Zazen with the great mind of Buddha, you will find the worst horse is the most valuable one. In your very imperfections, you will find the basis for your firm way-seeking mind. In your very imperfections, you will find the basis for your firm way-seeking mind. Um, I was thinking about a painter I like a lot, Philip Guston, who had a big exhibit at the MFAH last year, and some of you may have gone to this exhibit. And I was watching a documentary where Philip Guston was painting, and um, the interviewer came to him the next day and saw that he had completely painted over the almost finished painting from the day before. And the interviewer said to him, um, what are you doing? <laughs> like, what, why did you destroy that? And he said, I didn't experience enough with the canvas. I hadn't experienced enough with the canvas. And he said the painting, it could be read more as like an accretion, like an addition of this image and this image and this image and this image. And he wanted to create a painting that was such a complete whole expression that it couldn't be broken down into component parts. Like you couldn't analyze it. It just was kind of indelibly present. And I think that um, we can aspire to that in our practice, right? The worst horses, <laughs> being the worst horse or noticing um, that our horse is maybe uh, flagging, should I say, gives us an opportunity to experience more, to experience more. Um, and through experiencing more, whether that experience be easy or difficult, 
in terms of your own perception, that further experience is really valuable and can teach us something. I was looking around this temple. I've, and, and many of us here in this room have done this. I've sat facing every one of these walls for hours and hours and hours and hours. Like every one of these walls in this room, I've sat and faced in Zazen. And a number of us in this room have done that. And for me, it's really transformed this space. For me, it's my experience of coming in here is partially a result, a culmination of all of that experience of sitting and facing the walls and being in this place with all the other people who I've practiced with. And then that creates something that's beautiful that people who are newer to the practice can come and step into and enter and kind of feel that resonance, right, of practice. Um, so in that way, we're kind of like inside of this canvas. <laughs> it's kind of three-dimensional, amazing canvas that we have created together, continually sustained together. Um, another point that Shinru Suzuki makes is um, that there's a phrase that Dogen uses that's from um, the Song Dynasty in China, Shoshaku Jushaku, which is translated as uh, sometimes as one continuous mistake or one mistake after another. And Suzuki makes this point that our Zen life could be one continuous mistake. Um, I was doing a little light research and I found two different interpretations of Shoshaku Jushaku. Um, one is that it's when you make a mistake and then in trying to correct the mistake, you make another mistake. Oops. <laughs> the second um, understanding was a craftsperson can make a mistake in making something and can then take advantage of that mistake to make something that incorporates the mistake into whatever it is that's being made. And that seems to be, I think both of those are really relevant to our practice. Um, sometimes we feel like we're making another mistake to correct the previous mistake, but it's, there's also this possibility that we can incorporate the mistake. We can change our relationship to the mistakes that we perceive that we're making or that we actually are making. And um, we can use those mistakes, right. To, to guide us to step into the next breath, the next moment, the next uh, ceremony. That reminds me to look at my time device. Uh, ah, okay. <laughs> First of all, yeah, mistake is to hold the watch upside down. To hold the right side up is a great corrective. Okay, good. So I feel like I have maybe 10 minutes. Um, so um, I wanted to tell some session stories, but I'll wait. I'll wait until maybe the question and answer period. Um, I was going to make some confessions about some of my mistakes on top of mistakes. Um, but uh, I also want to say that one thing I did with this image of the four horses is I played around with it and I came up with another interpretation of it, which is not based on anything except for my own imagination, considering these teachings. And that's something I encourage all of us to do. Um, 
because that can really enliven the teachings for us when we can not just understand them and practice with them, but we can also really relate to them through imagining how these images may be read differently. So um, I noticed Dogen does this often. So I had this feeling, I don't want to just, um, this is with great hubris, obviously what I'm about to say, I don't want to just understand what Dogen is saying in his writings. I want to do what Dogen is doing in his writings. Like I want to try to um, really consider these ideas and these images and how they can be seen in various ways. I can turn them around for myself. So I was thinking about the four horses and what if each of these horses symbolized a specific aspect of our practice? And let's just say for the sake of argument that um, one of the horses is Zazen. I'm just going to go for it now. One of the horses is Zazen. And let's say another one of the horses is chanting and bowing. And I'm going to call these two horses the ceremonial horses. So I'm going to talk about the ceremonial forms of practice, zazen, chanting, bowing. And then um, the third horse, I'm going to call the horse of ethical precepts. And then the fourth horse, I'll call the horse of sangha practice or being in community, work practice, informal conversations that we have together, all these practices where we're together as a group and we're relating to each other. Obviously, ethical precepts are not separate. None of these, none of these horses are separate from each other. Um, but for the sake of how I was thinking about this model, there are the two ceremonial horses and then the two horses of what I'll call relational practices. And I was thinking, I think what Suzuki, Roshi, and what Dogen Zenji are recommending is that we integrate. We think about how we can integrate the ceremonial practice, the practice of form, of forms in Zen, and the relational practice. How are we actually being with each other? How are we listening with each other to each other? How are we responding to each other? Um, and I had no idea that Galen Roshi was going to make that announcement mm-hmm. about all these new guidelines for emotional and, and sexual relations. I thought, how perfect. Like, I had no idea. But this is really a demonstration of how our sangha is integrating the relational and the ceremonial horses, I'll call them horses, right? And so then we understand um, what we can attempt to do is to bring warmth and compassion and empathy to the ceremonial forms, to the practice of zazen, to our chanting and bowing. We can infuse them with warmth and compassion and we realize that there are these channels. Each of the forms is a channel that's transmitting. We're transmitting Dharma when we bow and we're receiving. We're also receiving Dharma. There's a two-way channel that opens with each of these forms. Um, and then in terms of the relational stuff, the relational practices, we realize that bringing the rigor of the form bringing the discipline and the boundary of the Zen forms into our relationships is the way in which we really express love and care for each other. That 
that's how we are being upright with one another. So um, that's all I wanted to say in terms of how I was playing with those images. And the I thought the, the beautiful full moon ceremony that we took part in earlier today too is an expression of the inseparability, the coming together of the precepts, the relational aspects of our practice and the forms themselves. Um, Well, I've said a lot, but I'll just say a little more. Just say a little more. Um, I have a story written down, handwritten in one of these pages. So I'm in Houston because um, in addition to giving this talk, I had a, a, a book release event at Brazos Bookstore on Friday night. And some of the folks who are here now were there at that event. Um, and I read from my memoir. And... Um, Afterwards, my, my wife, Elizabeth, told me a story about an interaction which involves all three of the participants are actually in this room right now. And so um, my wife, Elizabeth, introduced my friend Jerry to Galen, to my teacher, Galen Roshi. This is according to Elizabeth, okay? So maybe <laughs> the folks who are there could actually have a very different take on this. And um, according to Elizabeth, Jerry said, um, I'm no Buddhist. And Galen said, neither am I. <laughs> there really aren't any Buddhists except for one. And then apparently Constance had walked over. And then she, Galen turned to Constance and said, and here she is. <laughs> So, I don't know how true that story is, but I love it. It's a great story. And it's a beautiful illustration of a response, right, of this, um, of this immediate kind of relational teaching that's being given in the moment and the seamless integration of the Dharma and of conversation and um, inclusion. So, I just thought that was a beautiful moment that I would share. Um, one of the really interesting things I noted when I was uh, then reading, I just want to talk for just a moment about Dogen Zenji's fascicle, because um, he extends upon what Shinra Suzuki mentions um, in terms of that allegory of the four horses. So Dogen Zenji, um, quoting from the same sutra that Shinru Suzuki mentions, after the four horses are described, the excellent, the good, the poor, and the bad horse, then Dogen Zenji continues from the sutra and writes, the first horse is like someone who hears about impermanent, the impermanence of a village and arouses the thought of leaving home. The second is like someone who hears about the impermanence of one's own village and decides to leave home. The third horse is like someone who hears about the impermanence of one's parents and leaves home. And the last horse is like someone who experiences the suffering of one's own disease and leaves home. What I find striking about 
um, this further elaboration of the metaphor is that it seems to be about increasing our sensitivity and receptivity to the suffering of others. So the most excellent horse, the shadow of the whip, right, is um, a realization of the impermanence of all beings, of the entire village. The good horse, or you know, the, the, the moment before the whip strikes the skin, is the realization that one's own village, one's own community is impermanent and subject to uh, decay and death and disillusion. The third would be um, one's own family, realizing that one's own family is subject to impermanence. And then the last horse is the one that arouses the desire to leave home after experiencing disease, uh, the reality of impermanence for oneself. So that as we work um, with all these horses, which obviously we fluctuate between within ourselves, um, we can think about how we can constantly expand our hearts and how we can make our practice um, an offering to the entire world, the entire village, all villages. And that seems to be our Bodhisattva vow in its largest sense. So I hope that we can all keep riding our horses together. Mm -hmm.